0: good morning once again. It's good to worship with you all this morning. Well, at one point or another, we have all pursued transformation in different areas of our life. Maybe you, past or present, have pursued transformation with your body. And so, you have pursued an exercise or a diet regimen and maybe sought accountability with your overall health. Maybe you have pursued transformation in your home, and so you have hired a general contractor, and you maybe put some sweat equity into a specific part of your home in order to transform it. Maybe you have pursued transformation of your finances, and so you have sought, you've pursued financial kind of management solutions. Maybe you've pursued transformation in your marriage, your home relationships, or, or your work relationships, and so you've pursued methods in how to better and more clearly communicate with those around you, with those you live with and, and work with. At one point or another, we have all pursued transformation in different areas of our lives, and we live in a a day and age where it's never been easier to pursue transformation, particularly here in our Western context. And there are positive aspects of this, and there are negative aspects of this. With the rise of what is called by Carl Truman, who's a historian and theologian, with the rise of expressive individualism. In a transformation-hungry world, we can attempt to transform just about anything we desire, including even our own gender, if we have the right amount of money, medicine, and a decent surgeon. Transformation has never been easier for better and for worse. And maybe you've thought about this, but all types of transformation, all types, are dependent upon kind of what we do, right? All those things that I just mentioned. With a a strong enough will, with the means, with discipline, With opportunities and a whole lot of self-control, the sky is seemingly the limit here in the West. But what if there's a kind of transformation
1: that we aren't in control of at all?
0: A kind of transformation that doesn't require any pursuit on our part, but a kind of transformation that can only happen If someone outside of us pursues us and transforms us by pure grace. This is the kind of transformation that we're going to look at today in the Gospel according to John. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel according to John. It is the fourth book of the New Testament. This morning, we are going to be continuing our series through the gospel according to John, and we're going to be living in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, uh, the great pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon spoke of visiting many good books but living in the Bible, and this morning we are going to live in the Bible, in this chapter, John chapter 3. And if, if you do not have a Bible, please grab one from a pew near you, you can find John on page 886, and if you are new to reading the Bible, we are so glad that you have joined us this morning, and so just to get our bearings, uh, the big numbers in in the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and you'll be helped. We will all be helped to keep our Bibles open to John chapter 3 this morning as we walk through it. So let's jump in. let's look at John chapter 3, just that first section, 1 through 15. And then in the rest of our message, um, we're going to be walking through the rest of the, the chapter as well today. So John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is God's Word for and to the church. Thanks be to God. Can we say that together? Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing and the applying of His Word this morning. Father, we ask that You would send Your Spirit now to open us up to Your Word and Your Word up to us. We ask that You would tune our hearts to sing your praise you would fill us with your grace we ask that we would not just be informed but transformed by your word this morning and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight O lord you who is our rock and our redeemer it's in the name of jesus that we pray amen amen Well, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus and the author of this gospel account, has been causing us to behold the glory of God in the Son of God. That's what we've been beholding together as we've walked through just the first section of this gospel so far. And in the first two chapters, we have particularly seen how God has come to earth in Jesus and has brought fulfillment in and through his person and work. And now we arrive at chapter 3. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's the big idea of the whole chapter. Here it is. We must be spiritually transformed to enter the kingdom of God. We must be spiritually transformed to enter the kingdom of God. And that point is going to be unpacked in this chapter as we look at a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15 that we just read. And then as we look at the relationship between Jesus and the world in verses 16 to 21. And then as we look at the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist in verses 22 through 36. So point one, Jesus and Nicodemus. Well, if you recall from last week, Jesus performed the first of his signs, at least recorded here in John, and it was a two-part sign. There at Cana, at a wedding feast, Jesus transformed water into wine, and this was a sign that pointed to the glorious reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and that with him, with his person, and with his work, he has brought a new age a messianic age of abundant life with him and in him. And then Jesus went to Jerusalem, to the Passover, and he found that the temple, the house of God, had been turned into a house of business, where men and women were were profiting from the worship of God, where men and, and women were actually blocking Jews and Gentiles from rightly worshiping God. And so Jesus, seeing this, is outraged, righteously outraged. And so he overturns the temple and proclaims that in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, a new and better temple with a new and better worship has arrived in him. Jesus changes everything, everything. And John wants us to see this. And after all of this, chapter 2 closes with these words. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the catch this, signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not also catch this, entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. And then Chapter 3 begins. Look there with me now. Now there was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. Now Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a part of what is called the Sanhedrin, which was a, a council of ruling Jews in Palestine. Long story short, Nicodemus was a part of a political, judicial, and religious leadership group. And Nicodemus was at the top. He was one of the top guys, the religious leaders and teachers of that day. Think of the most credentialed person you know in whatever field. That's what Nicodemus is in the world of Judaism. And he comes to Jesus in the dark of night. We're going to hear more about that in just a moment. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Notice Nicodemus recognized that Jesus is a rabbi or a teacher. He appropriately addresses him. And he also recognized that he has come from God. And he believed this. Why? Because of the signs that Jesus had been doing. And here is the connection with those verses at the close of chapter two. Once again, Nicodemus is an example of someone that Jesus did not entrust himself to. Someone who was curious about Jesus because of the signs that he was doing. And Nicodemus was in darkness. Literally, he's coming to Jesus under the dark of night. But John is also making the point that Nicodemus is also in spiritual darkness. And what we must understand is that outside of Jesus, we are Nicodemus in this story. We may not be a Jewish ruler that's credentialed, but we are Nicodemus in this story. Like him, outside of Jesus, in darkness, we are fully capable of knowing things about God and not truly knowing God. We are fully capable of loving things about God and not truly loving God. We are fully capable of being informed by God's Word, having our our heads full of God's Word, but not actually transformed by it. We are fully capable of being religious, but not reborn.
1: Outside the transforming work of Jesus in our lives, we are Nicodemus.
0: And in response to this, Jesus answers him, verse three, truly, truly, which means you really need to listen to this. You really got to catch this, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused, right? Praise God, praise God for examples of folks in Scripture who are confused, just like us, so often. And he responds, verse 4, "A a What? Hold on. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, verse 5, Truly, truly. Again, you got to really hear this. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Two brief points. First, when Jesus speaks of rebirth through water and Spirit, he is not referring to baptism. A lot of ink has been spilt on this. He is not referring to water baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. The whole of Scripture testifies to that truth but he is speaking of the transformation of being spiritually washed made new given new life and here John teaches us once again to read our Bibles backwards to read the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is see Jesus's words here are are a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy And that Old Testament prophecy is found in Ezekiel 36. That passage that we just read. You don't have to turn there, but let me read 36, 25 through 27 once again. I, this is God speaking, will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put... My spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, careful to obey my rules. So, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is saying, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water, you must be sprinkled clean, and the spirit must give you a new heart. You must have a spiritual heart transplant. And that That rebirth can only happen, that new heart can only be given in and through Jesus. We can't save ourselves. God must save us. Second, if we were to do a full study of the message of Jesus found in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we would find that at the heart of Jesus' message is this. Repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. And here in this conversation, Jesus is making it abundantly clear, in him the kingdom has come. And knowledgeable Nicodemus, who is in spiritual darkness, can't see that clearly. He must be given sight. And maybe you noticed his questions but this this is kind of hidden, kind of implicitly in his questions, but, but Nicodemus actually assumes that he is a part of the kingdom because of his bloodline, his status, his knowledge, his leadership in the religious community. But Jesus is making it abundantly clear that none of those things give you sight. None of those things give you entry into the kingdom of God. And here's the lesson for us. We can assume That we are saved because of our family, or our ethnicity, or our church attendance, or by being a good person, or saying and doing the right things at church, or, or being knowledgeable about the Bible. But in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must see and enter through Jesus alone. Outside of Jesus, we are all in hell-bound confusion and darkness. But Jesus brings clarity where there is confusion and light where there is darkness and sets the record straight here that we must be given new life, rebirth and sight and entry into the kingdom through him. Jesus must initiate that just as he has initiated relationship with the disciples back in chapter 1. God must act first because, verse 6, flesh can only give birth to flesh. In other words, women can only give birth to physical children. But the Spirit, in other words, gives birth to spirit. In other words, only God can give new birth to spiritual children through Jesus. We cannot give spiritual birth to ourselves. We are not in control of that. And verse 8 explains that just as you and I cannot control the wind, But we actually see the impact that the wind makes. You are not, you and I are not in control of our salvation. God must sovereignly work by his goodness and his grace. And praise God that this is the case. Praise God for this. Because, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Praise God that
1: God saves. (laughs)
0: Well, in response to this, Nicodemus still can't believe what he's hearing. He still still can't believe it. And and Jesus rebukes him in verses 10 through 13. Again, Nicodemus knew all the scriptures. He'd studied them all his life. He'd he'd taught them. He'd memorized them. He truly knew his Bible. And and Jesus is making the point, hey, if you really knew your Bible, then you would know that it, it talked about a future day. When there would be spiritual transformation through the Messiah. You would know this. See, the truth was in Nicodemus' head, but not his heart. It had not dropped down from his head into his heart. And so Jesus presses further in and unpacks further who he is and reveals to Nicodemus that he is the Son of Man, a title that Nicodemus would have well understood from the Old Testament. And there in verses 14 through 15, Jesus explains this reality by retelling the event of an Old Testament story from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. In that passage, like Nicodemus, God's people are in spiritual darkness in literal wilderness, and God's people grumble against God in response to God's goodness in giving them an exodus. They were discontent, stubborn, and stiff-necked. And in response, God sends them a plague of serpents, and they were dying right and left from from venomous snake bites. But in the midst of all of this, God made a promise of life in the midst of all of that death. God provides a way of salvation. And how were the people saved from bites and physical death back in Numbers 21? Well, by looking at a bronze serpent that Moses would lift up in the wilderness. And here in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is connecting this story to his work as the Son of Man. That he would be lifted up on the cross to die. But then three days later would be resurrected. And then shortly thereafter would ascend in glory. Through looking to Jesus alone, spiritual transformation, spiritual healing, not just physical, spiritual healing and true life and entry into the kingdom is made possible. Jesus is the only way. Well, this is not the only time we see Nicodemus and John here in this section. He comes up again later in the book, and I believe that's John's way of telling us, hey, Nicodemus did, did be, he was given sight, and he did enter the kingdom. He did come to saving faith in Jesus. And if there's hope for Nicodemus, there is hope for us. Well, why did God do any of this? Why did God provide salvation? Why did God even establish a kingdom through Jesus in the first place? Why would he pursue and transform anyone at all? Why? Have you ever asked that? Why?
1: Because God is a God of love beyond compare. That's where we go next. That brings us to point two, Jesus and the world.
0: Look with me at verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already Well, here we see John the author's commentary, or really kind of worshipful relishing of what Jesus has done in his ministry. And I believe that this is really John's kind of thoughts on Jesus' conversation there with Nicodemus. Right here in this section. And here we read, I don't know if you notice there, in John 3.16, the most popular verse, probably in the church. And if you know it, you should say it with me. Let's do this now. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Again, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this verse as well, so let's clarify some things this morning. First, that that term, the world, is an all-encompassing term that captures the people on earth, past present and future, who are condemned, as it says in verse 18, who are in darkness like Nicodemus, who love the darkness and hate the light, as it says in verses 19 through 20. And because of that, the world is under God's judgment because of sin. That's, That's what the world was referring to here. But God, in love, as the text says, sent His only Son into the world so that those who Look to the sun and believe in Him will be brought out of darkness into a kingdom of light. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how you think about God this morning. Maybe you see Him as a complacent or kind of negligent parent. Just kind of standing by, waiting, tapping His foot until the end of time. Maybe, maybe you think of Him as a genie. Something... a. Something or someone at your beck and call that you can just kind of like, you know, call at will. (laughs) May your will be done. Maybe you think of him as a God amongst other gods that offers just a higher way of joy and of peace and of life. Maybe you see him as a cold, distant being that is ready to smite you when you fail.
1: I wonder how you think about God this morning. Well, here in this passage we find that
0: God, the one true God, the one that Scripture testifies of and two, is a God of love.
1: He is loving. And this
0: loving God desires that all would come to see their sin and their heart of darkness and turn toward Him and be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. This is God's heart for the world, and he's actually displayed his heart in the work of Jesus, in the work of the gospel, that that truth that that the world was made, and it was made good, and that Adam and Eve were made, and they were made very good, but they sinned, and they rebelled against God. They, They chose darkness over light, rebelled against him. And sin and darkness enter the world. And it's not just Adam and Eve who have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as the scriptures say. Everyone in this room is a condemned sinner. And the wages of sin is death. Death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death and separation from God. Because of our sin, the final destiny of unbelieving sinners is a place called hell. We will all one day die. We will all one day be judged. No one gets a pass on that. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son He lived a sinless life, and then he was crowned with a crown of thorns and went to a cross where he bore the weight of God's wrath against sin for sinners like you and I. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he got up from the dead, was resurrected, and then he later ascended to the right hand of God where he reigns now. And why did he do all of this? He did this out of love for condemned sinners who love their sin. And what should our response be? Repentance, turning from sin and faith, turning toward Christ for light and life and salvation. Maybe this is your first time in church and you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you've grown up in the church but you're kind of meh about Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to to HFBC for some time but have not responded to this glorious message of Jesus. If this is you, friend, hear this. You were made by a God of love. And you were made to love God. But your sin has separated you from him.
1: But God so loved you that he sent Jesus into the world to save you. So would you repent
0: and believe in him today? If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. We're also going to be fellowshipping together at a Thanksgiving meal. We'd love to talk with you more about this. But brother, sister, Christian, this eternal life, this salvation that we just read up here in these verses, doesn't just come after death. This eternal life has already begun. It's begun at the moment of regeneration in your life, in the moment that that God renewed your heart, gave you a new heart. And He's brought you already into an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that has been inaugurated, yes, inaugurated or started by Christ in His first coming, but will not be consummated or completed until His second coming. And if you are a gospel-professing, baptized member of HFBC, then you are a part of this embassy of Christ's kingdom here on earth. That's what we are as a church, an embassy of a heavenly kingdom on earth. And you have been saved, and you're capable of walking in the light and love of that salvation, and capable of living sacrificially and doing good works in that light and love as it says there in verse 21 not for god's glory not for your glory i'm sorry but for god's glory and for the good of others here at hfbc and all of this is made possible all of it has been made possible by god through jesus for us
1: all of it so when was the last time you stopped and just meditated pondered
0: the love of God displayed for you in the gospel of Jesus? When was the last time that you stood at the foot of the cross
1: and displayed the agony of Christ, but also the deep beauty of what he did for sinners? When was the last time that you stood at the empty tomb and beheld the glory of the resurrected Jesus?
0: When was the last time that you stood with the apostles there at the end of Matthew 28 and and in Acts 1 and, and beheld the ascension of Jesus? When was the last time you simply rejoiced in the reality that through the Gospel you have become a transformed citizen of God's kingdom? Sometimes I think we move too fast. Our minds, our hearts are full of, of other things, particularly around this season. So we move too fast and we forget these things. We forget to relish in them and revel in them like John is doing here. So let me encourage you to do, to do three R's this week. Three R's.
1: Reflect. Rehearse and
0: rejoice. Reflect on God's love for you in the gospel. Rehearse that love displayed for you through the gospel. And then rejoice in that work. And don't just do that personally. Do it with another member here at HFBC. We're in a season of Thanksgiving. You're going to have lots of people in your homes, I'm sure. We're even about to gather around around the table and share a meal here in a little bit. This would be a great season to take some time to go around the table and reflect and rehearse and rejoice
1: in what God has done.
0: Do this together. Reflect, rehearse, and rejoice in what God has been doing in your life and what he is doing through his word and gospel and spirit here in the life of this church. Reflect, rehearse, and rejoice. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light
1: of his glory and grace.
0: Well, thus far we have seen that we must be spiritually transformed to enter the kingdom of God. We saw this in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and then we saw that God in love sent his son into the world so that we might see him and be transformed through his work and taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and life. But what does kingdom life look like? What does it look like to live a life that's transformed? What does it look like to be and to live as a transformed citizen of the kingdom of God here on earth? Well, enter the witness, John the Baptist. That takes us to point three, Jesus and John the Baptist. Look with me at verses 22 through 36. and John's worshipful relishing of God's love in Christ, we read in verse 22 that Jesus and his posse have head into the Judean countryside where John the Baptist was also baptizing because John the Baptist hadn't been put in prison yet. Now, John was not himself baptizing. We, we see clarity of this in John uh, chapter 4, verse 2. But we do find out that his disciples were, though, And the message of the kingdom was spreading rapidly, and Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministries were growing and continuing to cause quite a stir. Many were being baptized, displaying that they were changed internally and brought into a different kingdom. Now, as this message was spreading rapidly... In both John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, and Jesus' ministry, some of John's folks came to him and said, hey, your ministry must be failing because this guy is doing better than you. Have you seen this guy? This is amazing what he's doing. But he's showing you up. And we read that a heated discussion had arisen between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over purification something that we, we re- re-read of back in chapter 2. So you can go back and listen to that sermon from last week to hear more about that. And the controversy also involved how many were following Jesus and not John the Baptist. And John clarifies. He sets the record straight right here as he kind of fades into the background here in this gospel account. He points out again that his ministry always pointed to Christ. It was always meant to be preparatory. And he he states this with an illustration. He uses a wedding. That his commitment has always been to the groom. Jesus the Messiah. See, John always saw himself as the best man alongside Jesus, rejoicing in him. Rejoicing in what's happening in and through him. John always saw himself in this way. And here, once again, John is pointing out an Old Testament reference into the imagery of of a wedding between God and Israel that pointed forward to the future wedding feast that would be held in eternity between Christ and the church. And there in verse 30, John declares his most quoted saying in all of ministry. I'm sure you've also heard this before. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And in a prideful world of jealousy and rivalry, here John displays humility, a central mark of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And there is so much encouragement here for us in these words. So what does humility look like in your life? What does humility look like in the life of our body? Taking this principle a little deeper, If you serve in a ministry here at HFBC,
1: if you have the
0: privilege to serve here at HFBC, are you willing to humbly decrease, to see another increase in service and leadership? Or are you kind of pridefully territorial over your place in the church or or in the budget? Are you willing to decrease and serve the whole body for the good of the whole, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of care and cohesion in this body, laying preferences or position or or status aside, decreasing so that another might increase? Taking this a step further, when it comes to other churches in our region, are we willing to celebrate and get excited when other ministries and churches here in Hillsboro are doing well and growing? Maybe bigger and faster than we are. Are we willing to get excited about that for the sake of Jesus and the gospel here in this region? Are we we willing to pray and to partner with other Christ-exalting churches for the good of the gospel here in our city and in our region? Are we willing to decrease so that Jesus might increase here in our region? If you are like me, it can be really hard. We can be pridefully jealous about others doing better than we are. It can be easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them kind of on ourselves and what we're doing. But are we willing to rejoice with other gospel-preaching faithful churches that are maybe growing faster than we are here in this area. It's not easy, but this is what humble Christians do. This is what humble churches do. We decrease so that Christ might increase. One of the primary ways we are engaging in this and doing this here in the life of HFBC is is through the pulpit ministry of the church. The pulpit is a place where, where Christ is to be exalted, not a person.
1: Where his word is to be open and applied, not just thoughts and some jokes.
0: Well, John models in verses 31 through 36 of what this further looks like. We don't have time to kind of dive into all the intricacies here. But here, John models what it not only looks like, but sounds like to decrease and to elevate Jesus as the one who is majestic and magnificent, far beyond our comprehension. The one who has come from heaven with a message from heaven, a spirit-given message that John and all humble and faithful Christians have and bear witness to, that same message of Paul In Ephesians 1, verse 21, that Christ, the one whom the Father loves, is above all rule and authority and dominion and power, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And even when this message is not received, as it says in verse 32, this is the message of the kingdom of hope, of eternal life in Jesus. And let's make no mistake, The mission of HFBC is to proclaim that message. To proclaim Christ above all. That is our mission. That is our humble proclamation. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. That message sounds almost too good to be true. That Jesus is reigning. And that light and and love has burst into this earth through his work and through his church sounds almost too good to be true, because though the power of sin and death have been broken, its presence still lingers, right? We have felt the impact of that this week, as we have grieved our
1: brother Doug Stover.
0: But this is why we need the transforming hope of the gospel every day to get us through weeks that we've had like this week.
1: Where, where you and I have felt the, the power and the presence of, of sin in our lives. Where we've felt the, the presence
0: of, of death even in this congregation. This is why we need the transforming hope of the gospel every day and to remind one another of the hope that we have in him that we are dependent and finite, and that we humbly need a Savior.
1: And, And out of this kind
0: of recognition, out of this daily need for a humble Savior, our prayer should be that Thy kingdom would continue to come and Thy will would continue to be done here at HFBC, here in Hillsborough, as it is in heaven until Christ returns and the kingdom is consummated forever. This is our humble proclamation and this is our humble prayer until Christ returns. Well, we should close. In this passage, we have seen that we must be spiritually transformed to enter the kingdom of our loving God. And we must be transformed, and enter through Jesus alone. And what's so important for us to recognize at the close of a passage like this, at the close of of John chapter 3, that salvation, the kingdom, the love of God displayed in Christ Jesus, even the fruit of humility that, that flows out of a humble life in Christ, are all evidences of God's abundant grace.
1: All of them. No one is saved apart from the transforming grace of Jesus.
0: No one can see or enter the kingdom apart from the transforming grace that God has lavished upon us through the work
1: of Jesus. And that ought to humble us. So let's pray and then sing of that grace together. Would you join me in prayer?
0: God of grace, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you that through it and and by it you are growing your church. You are growing your kingdom. But we admit, Lord, that we are often confused. and, And we admit that that we often succumb to the temptations of of sin, and we we so often fret over over the presence of death. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us a hope beyond ourselves, a hope in the gospel, and that your kingdom would come and that your will would, would be done here at HFBC as it is in heaven. And we will give you all the glory and praise for what you have done and are doing and will continue to do for your glory's sake. It's in the name of Jesus and for his sake that we pray. Amen.